like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Fishing has never been a real strong interest of mine, probably because I was trained by the master fisherman, my dad. <laughs> my memories of fishing as a youth are summed up in a picture we have at home of me about eight years old, standing with a fishing pole and holding the line like this, and you can't tell that anything's on it. <laughs> so I haven't even bothered to teach my kids to fish because I know nothing about it. When I was in Africa, I had the privilege of witnessing another kind of fishing, which was fishing with a net and bringing in large numbers of fish at one time. In Matthew, 419, Jesus likened our task of evangelism to fishing when he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And just as there are two methods of fishing physically, there are two methods of fishing spiritually. Sometimes we may be called to fish with a net and sometimes we may be called to fish with a pole. That's illustrated in Acts chapter 8 because in the first part of the chapter, Philip goes to Samaria and fishes with a net. He preaches and multitudes of people believe. In the last part of the chapter, he goes to the desert and he fishes with a pole. He's doing what Jesus often did. He's leaving the crowds and he's dealing with one lost individual. Now this passage has a lot of practical application for us because though we probably won't all have the opportunity to fish with a net, we all have the responsibility to fish with a pole. And though we may not all have the opportunity for mass evangelism, we all have the responsibility of personal evangelism. And so as we go through this passage, which is the familiar story about the Ethiopian eunuch, I want to pick out eight marks of effective personal evangelism. I want to pick out eight things about Philip that made him effective as a fisher of men. First of all, he was spirit-led in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25 says, And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now the they in verse 25 is Peter and John. On their trip to Samaria in verse 25, or in verse 15, we're simply told that they came down. Now they have witnessed the coming of the Spirit of God upon the Samaritans, and now as they go back, they share the heart of Philip for these Samaritan people. They now realize that it's open season on the Samaritans, and so they preach all the way home. And I'm sure that Philip had that same intention of staying in Samaria and preaching the gospel. But, verse 26 says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. You say, let me see if I've got this straight. Philip is preaching in Samaria. Multitudes are being saved and baptized. And God sends an angel to tell him, to leave. That's right. And it's even stranger when we realize where he was told to go. 
He was not told to go to some other metropolis. He was told to go to a road that goes southwest out of Jerusalem down to the ancient city of Gaza, about 50 miles long. And the city of Gaza had been destroyed in the first century BC, so it was now lying in ruins. And so this was no four-lane highway occupied by people. It was, as Luke tells us in his commentary in this verse, a desert road. And the word translated south in verse 26 is a Greek word that's translated both in the Septuagint and other places in the New Testament by the word noon, which very well may be its meaning here because Philip didn't need to be told that Gaza was south. He already knew that. What he is likely being told is when he is to be there at noon. So God says, here's where I want you to go, and here's when I want you to be there. Now, from a human perspective, this is not a very good plan. Because, first of all, he's going to a a desert road. The likelihood of finding anybody traveling this road would be unlikely. And secondly, he's told to go at noon. When do people usually travel desert roads? Early in the morning or late in the afternoon? So at noon, this road that is rarely traveled is likely to be desolate, which only serves to highlight the lesson here, and that is that salvation is totally God's work. If we're going to be effective for God, we can't rely on human ingenuity. If we're going to be effective for God, we can't depend on our own plans. If we're going to be effective for God, we can't hope for mere chance encounters. We have to be spirit-led because it's His work. I mean, think about it. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 that people are dead in sin. That is, they cannot respond to God. What are you and I going to do in our own strength to benefit a dead man? Nothing. And beyond that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So not only is man dead, he is also blind. And then beyond that, Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower that Satan is there when the truth lands on a heart to snatch it away like the birds. So people are dead, they are deceived, and Satan is doing everything in his power to keep them that way. Now that's a pretty difficult playing field. And the message ought to be clear to you and me, and that is not to try to go it alone. The first thing that made Philip an effective fisherman was that he was spirit-led. Now, don't use this as a cop-out. Don't say, well, if God ever sends me an angel and tells me where to go, then I'll, I'll go witness. What I want you to understand is Philip was already witnessing. He was already busy doing that, and God redirected him to another place. You don't have to be told by an angel to witness. Scripture tells you to do that. You are to be busy doing it. What we need to be is sensitive to the Spirit of God to lead us to the right person at the right time because it's His work. 
That's why Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 2, to be prepared to share the gospel in season and out of season. Second lesson we learned from Philip is that he was obedient. Verse 27 says, and he arose and went. He was obedient to the Lord's calling. God told another individual to get up and go and he got up and went the wrong way. That individual was Jonah. And just like Jonah, Philip could have easily questioned the logic of God's decision. I mean, he's in Samaria in the midst of a full-scale revival. People are being saved. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. He is right where the action is. I'm sure it had to go through his mind. God, why would you be taking me from here to a desert road? And also, if you look on a map, you'll find that Samaria is 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Gaza is 50 miles southwest. He might have thought in his mind, well, Peter and John are already going back to Jerusalem. So they're going to be closer than I am. Why don't you use one of them? Or if he was real creative, he might think, well, God... You went to all the trouble to send an angel to me. Why didn't you just send the angel to the Ethiopian eunuch and not even use the middleman? But see, he doesn't raise any of those arguments. He simply obeys. And what I like about Philip is that he obeyed even though he didn't completely understand why. That's faith. You see, he was the right man for the job. God had specially prepared Philip and he had specially prepared the Ethiopian eunuch for this very moment. And God has specially prepared you as well. And there are certain people in your circle of influence that God has prepared as well. But the key for Philip is, in order to accomplish what he accomplished in Acts chapter 8, He had to obey. You say, well, what happens if I don't obey? Well, then God will find somebody else to take your place. Or he'll bring along a big fish. When Queen Esther was hedging on whether she was going to seize the moment that God set before her in Esther 4.14, Mordecai said to her, if you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say but that you have been elevated to the palace for just such a time as this? Philip seized the moment, even though it wasn't logical. And that's always the nature of obedience to God, because it never seems logical. And the reason it's not logical is because of our vantage point. God has the big picture. We always have the limited picture. And when God says go, he rarely gives us a full detailed blueprint. In fact, if you'll notice the case of Philip, he doesn't even tell Philip why he's going to the desert road. He just says go. And Philip had to obey him in the first step before God revealed the second step. And I believe if you're not willing to obey God in faith in the first step, he never reveals the second step. 
And so the second thing that made Philip an effective fisherman or fisher of men was that he was obedient. You say, yeah, but why did God take him from this full-scale revival out into the desert to meet with one man? Well, we're not told. But I think one thing is clear to me, and that is God's concern for the individual. The same principle that is borne out in the parable of the lost sheep when the shepherd was willing to leave the ninety and nine to go find that lost lamb. Third principle we learn here about Philip was that he was discerning, verses 27 to 29. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Now, when Philip got down to the desert road, Luke says, behold, that's a word of astonishment. That's a word of surprise. Surprise because there was actually a person here and surprise because of the kind of person it was. And Luke goes on to describe who he was. We can say several things about him from Luke's account. Number one, he was influential. We're told here that he was a court official of the queen of Ethiopia. Ethiopia in that day was a large kingdom south of Egypt. Specifically, it says he was in charge of all her treasure. Today, we would call him the secretary of the treasury or the minister of finance. He had a high position in Ethiopia. He was influential. Secondly, he was a eunuch. Now, that's a term that's sometimes used in an official sense. In the Septuagint, for instance, in Genesis 39.1, we're told that Potiphar was a eunuch. There it simply means that he was an Egyptian officer. Not a literal eunuch because we're told that he was married. This individual in Acts chapter 8 was apparently a literal eunuch. And the reason I say that is because Luke chooses to use a second Greek word to describe the fact that he was a court official. And the reason he was emasculated was probably due to his close working relationship with the queen of Ethiopia. Thirdly, he was wealthy. And the reason I say that is because he had a position in the Ethiopian government. He could afford to take a 300-mile trip to Jerusalem. And we're told here he was riding in a chariot. That's like saying today he drove a Lexus. He was wealthy. And not only that, but he could afford a driver. You say, where do you see that? Look at verse 28. It says, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. He's returning in his chariot and he's reading. Now you may drive your car and read, but you couldn't drive a chariot and read. And down in verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop, which means somebody else was driving it. In fact, he probably had a, a whole entourage with him on this occasion. He was wealthy. And not only that, but we also know he was wealthy because he could afford to buy a copy of Isaiah. Now, on that day, you didn't have paperback copies of the scriptures you could buy for $5.99. This was a handwritten scroll that would be very hard to get and very expensive in the city of Jerusalem. He took one home with him. And then fifthly, or fourthly, we could say that he was religious. 
He had made the long trek to Jerusalem for one purpose, and that was to worship. And the fact that he was religious was rather evident because he's sitting in his chariot as he's traveling along and he's reading the scriptures. Now, this guy seems to have a lot going for him. He's influential, he's wealthy, he's religious. No wonder, Luke said, behold. And it would be easy for Philip to look at this man and think he's got it all together. He doesn't really need me. And I think sometimes as Christians, we fail to have the discernment that Philip had. You see, Philip looked at this man and he saw through all the circumference and he saw his need. And sometimes we look at individuals today and we say, well, that guy's got it all together. He's got a nice family. He's got a nice job. He's got wealth. He's got everything going for him. And we don't have the perception and the discernment to look down and see that inside, underneath, he's empty. If we're going to be effective as fishers of men, we have to be discerning. It's like Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus looked out on the multitudes and it says he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody without Christ is just that same way. They are a sheep without a shepherd, no matter how influential, no matter how wealthy, no matter how religious they may be. The third thing that made Philip an effective fisher of men was that he was discerning. Fourth thing, he was tactful. Verse 30, and when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? Now, I like that. He didn't come up and say, did you know you're going to burn in hell unless you repent? He was tactful. In fact, he didn't even begin with a statement. He began with a question. Do you understand? You see, he's going to listen to this man and he's going to figure out where he's coming from and then he's going to build from there. That's tact. I'm told that experienced fishermen use specific baits and lures to catch specific fish. I wouldn't know. But the same is true in fishing for men. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul said, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. What does salt do? Salt gives flavor to food. And everybody has different taste buds. Some people like a lot, some people like a little. Paul is saying, you need to listen to each individual. You need to figure out where they're coming from. And you need to salt the message with grace so that it's as palatable as possible. We never change the message, but we do change the tactic. Jesus illustrates that. When he talked to Nicodemus, the intellectual theologian, he was direct as can be. He said, you've got to be born again. When he talked to the woman at the well who had spent her lifetime trying to fill the void in her life through failed relationships, Jesus talked about what could satisfy her spiritual thirst. When Jesus talked to the woman caught in adultery, 
He talked about forgiveness. When Jesus talked to Zacchaeus, a lonely, friendly, outcast, perched in a tree, he said, come on down, let's do lunch. Come on down and let's talk over a meal and have fellowship together. And like Jesus, we need to recognize the specific needs of individuals as we present the gospel. The fourth thing that made Philip an effective fisher of men was that he was tactful. God is not looking for haphazard machine gunners. He's looking for responsible sharpshooters. Fifth thing we learn from Philip is that he was opportunistic in verses 31 to 34. Just because Philip discerned that the Ethiopian eunuch had a need didn't necessarily mean that the Ethiopian eunuch understood that need. And so what we find in Philip is that he's got his sensors up. He's looking for an opportunity. That's why he asked the question that he does in verse 30. Do you understand what you're reading? Did he get an opportunity? Absolutely. Look at verse 31. And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I would say that's a pretty clear opportunity. Come up in the chariot and teach me. Now, you can't help but detect a note of disillusionment here. Here's a fellow who had traveled 300 miles to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of worshiping. And I'm sure when he got to Jerusalem, he ran into a lot of stop signs because he's a Gentile. So he couldn't have even entered the temple to do that worshiping, he had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. Beyond that, Genesis chapter 23 and verse 1 says that eunuchs were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. So he's come 300 miles to worship, and I'm sure he has not gotten an up-close and personal experience at the temple in Jerusalem. And so now he's going home just as empty as when he came. But what I like about him is he's still searching. He's reading the scriptures even though he doesn't understand them because he knows that's the best way to find God. And God said in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And now out on this desert road, he's about to find what he's been searching for. Verse 32, now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And we're not told why the Ethiopian eunuch chose to buy the book of Isaiah. But I suspect there was a reason behind it, and that is he, he found out that the book of Isaiah had something to say about eunuchs, because it does. In Isaiah 56.5, God says, I will give eunuchs a name better than the sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. He read that in the book of Isaiah, and he said, I'm going to read this whole book and find out how I get that name. And so he's reading along, and what's he reading? He's reading about the lamb who went silently to the slaughter. Just when Philip starts to climb into the chariot. 
And Philip had to say, oh, here's an opportunity. And then not only that, verse 34 says, and the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Who is the lamb that he's writing about? Now here's an opportunity that's hard to miss. He invites Philip up into the chariot. As he does, he just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53 and he says to him, who is the lamb that was slain? Wow. When you get those kind of opportunities, you get pretty excited. I remember one time years ago when we had the college fellowship on the campus, we used to get visitors every Friday night. And so we'd begin the study by going around the room and and everyone would introduce themselves and we'd have them say something like what they had for breakfast or something like that. And this one occasion, for some reason, I decided to say, well, give your name and tell us when you accepted Christ. So we started around the room. We came to one of the new girls and she said, she she gave us her name and she said, I haven't accepted Christ yet, but that's why I came tonight. Now it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's an opportunity. And I had the privilege that night of leading her to the Lord. The Lord gives us those sometimes. That's what fell into Philip's lap on this occasion. This was a divine setup. Which brings us to the sixth thing that we learn about fishing for men from Philip. And that is, he was scripture-based. Verse 35, And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now what would have happened if Philip got into the chariot, and the guy's reading Isaiah 53, and he says, well, who's the lamb? And Philip says, Man, I don't know. I've never come across that passage before. You see, Philip was knowledgeable enough in the Scripture to take this man from his perplexity and preach Jesus. You see, he had done his homework. And we need to do our homework as well so we can meet people at their point of perplexity, at the question they have, and preach Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, we're to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. We need to be knowledgeable in the Word so that we can meet people at their question mark, but also because the Word of God is our primary tool for evangelism. A couple chapters later in Isaiah 55.11, God says, My word shall not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It's effective to give your testimony in witnessing, but you should never stop there. You should always use the Scriptures. God said in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Billy Graham once said, Time and time again in my ministry, I've quoted a Bible verse in a sermon, sometimes without planning to do so in advance, and afterwards someone would tell me that it was that verse which the Holy Spirit used to bring conviction of faith to him. The sixth thing that made the Philippian or Philip, an effective fisher of men, was that he was Scripture-based. Seventh thing, he was purposeful. Verses 36 to 39. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, 
And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, how did the Ethiopian eunuch know about baptism? Well, obviously, Philip had taught him about it. Jesus had said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, Philip was purposeful. His goal was not to simply tell people about Jesus. His goal was to make disciples. And the first step of obedience for a disciple is baptism. And so they saw some water. It was probably the Wadi El Hesi, which is a seasonal river that runs across this road just northeast of Gaza. And the eunuch asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, Philip might have come up with several answers. Well, you're a Gentile. You're a foreigner. You're a eunuch. You need to take the 13-week confirmation class. You need to take the five-week membership class. We need to have a probation period to see if your faith is genuine before we baptize you. We don't even have a church in Ethiopia. Where are you going to go to church? But see, Philip doesn't say any of those things because nothing prevented him from being baptized. Now, verse 37 is not in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, although if you read the verse, it may be in your margin. Uh, It's totally scriptural. It really uh, echoes the statement in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. But what happens here is verse 38 says, And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water. Now, Luke is very careful to trace the steps here. When the eunuch heard no objections from Philip, he stopped the chariot. They both went down into the water. Philip baptized him and they both came out of the water. Now, let me just highlight a few things here that this teaches us about baptism. Number one, as we said last week, baptism is not something you need to wait to get around to. In the New Testament, baptism was something that occurred immediately after a person placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, we often say that baptism is a way that we publicly identify with Jesus Christ. And while that's often the case, here's an example where it wasn't all that public. They were out in the desert with just a few people. We have another occurrence of that in Acts chapter 16 when the Philippian jailer is saved along with his family and it says they were baptized immediately and it was at night. Which I think reminds us that baptism is first and foremost an act of obedience. And then thirdly, I think this passage supports baptism by immersion because if baptism were by sprinkling, they could have had this baptism any time along the road because I'm sure they had water with them to drink in the desert. But they waited until they said, till he said, look, there's water. And then also we're told in this passage that they both went down into the water and Philip baptized him. If you're going to sprinkle, you both wouldn't need to get wet. And of course, I think the primary reason for that is because baptism is really a symbol of our identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, 
and resurrection. That's the picture. The eighth and final thing we learn from Philip in verses 39 and 40 is that he was persistent. Verse 39 says, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Now, I read some commentators that say there's really no miracle here. I see a miracle here. He comes out of the water and the, and the spirit of God fast forwards him, snatches him away. Verse 40 says, but Philip found himself at Azotus, which is 20 miles away. So here's a miracle of the Lord. He comes out of the water and God just 20 miles away. But what I like about this is two things. Number one, the eunuch didn't seem to even miss him. Look at verse 39. And they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. We don't read that the eunuch was left dazed on the road wondering what happened to Philip. But he doesn't even blink twice. He just goes on rejoicing because he has received everything he needs to satisfy his hungry soul. He is rejoicing. Philip is gone. He was just the messenger. He now has the Lord and he's rejoicing. And then the second thing I like here is that Philip hit the ground preaching. Verse 40 says, but Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. From Azotus, he made the 60 mile trip north to Caesarea. And like Peter and John in verse 25, he preached his way home. No matter where he was, Philip had only one thing on his mind. And later in, verse, or in chapter 21 of Acts, we're going to run into Philip again, 20 years later. And there we'll find that he's serving the Lord as an evangelist in Caesarea. Philip was persistent. You never retire from the task of evangelism. Billy Graham was hospitalized for a few days recently for a case of pneumonia, and they showed him on the news walking out of the hospital. And the reporter said, when the 79-year-old Graham was asked, what are you planning to do? He responded, I plan to keep preaching. I plan to keep preaching. And my question to some of you this morning is, when are you going to get started? Philip gives us some great guidelines here for fishing for men. He shows us that we need to be spirit-led, obedient, discerning, tactful, opportunistic, scripture-based, purposeful, and persistent. In October 1857, Hudson Taylor began to minister in Ningpo, China. And one of the first men he led to the Lord was a man named Mr. Nye. And one day, Mr. Nye asked Hudson Taylor, how long have you had the good news in England? And Taylor responded, well, England has known the gospel for centuries. And Mr. Nye said, my father died without the truth. Why didn't you come sooner? How long have you known the gospel? And how far... Have you shared it personally? We're going to close this morning by singing together hymn number 252. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing it.
And however God may have spoken to your heart this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to respond. I'm going to ask those who were baptized to come forward. And along with those, I'm asking you who may want to make a rededication to the Lord, those who want to accept the Lord today, you come forward as we sing 252.